Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Evan. Glad that you're here today. We are rounding out a sermon series on Malachi, and so I'm going to invite you uh, to find Malachi. We're going to read a verse from chapter one, and then we're going to go to three and finish out the book. We've been doing this for now. This is our sixth Sunday through Malachi. I also want to point out that while you're finding that, these little cards at the end of your pews, they're on the inside end. Um, We have more around. They're going to be relevant at the end of the sermon. So don't take notes on them. Or if you do, you're going to lose your notes probably. Um, Let's begin with Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. Just a couple words from that. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's where we started this whole series. God speaking to Judah, saying, I have loved you. That's a great message in and of itself, isn't it? I have loved you. God had chosen his covenant people and made promises to them. Those promises were blessings, good things. And yet their response, when God was faithful, they were adulterers over and over. He blessed them with place. He blessed them with purpose. He blessed them with relationship. And they continuously and consistently misused, ignored, or remained underwhelmed at the goodness, grace, and the power of God. And now they had returned to the land after exile from all their adulterous and idolatrous behavior. And, and the, build, the temple is being, has been rebuilt by this point. The walls of Jerusalem have been put back together. God's given them all of this. And yet they kind of feel stuck when you look at their situation. They feel like things aren't what they were, and they're not what they're supposed to be yet. They're not really old, and they're not really new. They're stuck in the middle somehow is what they feel. And we all go through periods like that. Maybe you're in a period like that today where you're stuck. Things aren't old, things aren't new. Things, maybe you, you've had a vibrant relationship with God in the past that doesn't feel that way today. Or you want that, but you're not where you think it should be. You feel stuck. It's easy in those moments to drift away from God and the goodness of God. And to drift away from what is right, best, and true. And that's indeed what's happening in Malachi. It can happen to us. But here's the truth today. It's the overarching theme of Malachi. It's where we bring it to a close today. God is a God of restoration. And that's good news today. God is a God of restoration. He's a God of restoration for the broken and the brokenhearted. He's a God of restoration for the bored, for the stuck, for the weak, for the tired. God is a God of restoration who comes in and says, I have loved you and calls us back to his presence. And in our passage today, if we go to Malachi 3 and start at verse 13, we're just going to read the rest of the book. And by this point, if you've followed along with this, you will have read all of Malachi over the past six weeks. Short book, but we did it. Good job. Malachi 3.13 to the end. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. 
What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. This is the word of the Lord. In Malachi, then, we've encountered two different groups. But what's interesting is up until this point, we only encountered one group, actually. You have the unfaithful. They've been dropped back in the land. There's a whole bunch of people who are unfaithful. And now you finally find what I'm calling this morning the responding remnant, the faithful few. And we'll put them to the side for a moment because the unfaithful still have a few concerns that need to be addressed at this point. They've had a lot. What are the concerns about the, from the unfaithful at this point? Because they've already been selfish. They've already withheld the tithe. They've already given their leftovers to God. They've already uh, disregarded the wives of their youth and thus God as well. What are the concerns of the unfaithful at this point? Well, arrogance. You might also call it selfishness. 3.13 uh, had that uh, you, you have spoken arrogantly against me, says God. And what, what does it mean to speak arrogantly against God or to be arrogant in that way? It means to make a strong case for yourself against God. You're building that case. And much of Malachi has that sort of courtroom setting going on in it. They're building their case. They're being selfish, actually, against God, putting their desires first in every case. That's their arrogance. And I want to throw in a truth right now that's going to sit in the back of our mind until we kind of come back to it towards the end here. But here's the truth. You will never do God's will if your will takes priority. Which doesn't seem like what they're thinking at this point, but that's the reality. You're never going to do God's will if your will takes priority. And somebody might argue, well, you could still fulfill doing God's will, maybe unintentionally, and which I would say, sure you could, but do you really want to be Pharaoh? I mean, that's the way you do that. You will never do God's will if your will takes priority. And so you can see their concerns here in their case against God, their arrogance against the Lord. Concern number one is that the unjust seem to prosper. 
It doesn't seem fair. And indeed, I'm going to guess that we've all had moments where we've thought the same thing. There are people in this world who do things that are evil, morally wrong, unjust, and they seem to do fine for some reason for a while. They seem to make money. They seem to make friends, whatever it is. They seem like they succeed or get away with it at times. Psalm 92, 5 through 7 kind of speaks to this, but it gives us a little more context. It says, how great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand that though the wicked spring up like grass and evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. But it does feel like in the middle of that, we can get caught up. The wicked spring up like grass and evildoers flourish. It seems too often like there's a little too much of that flourishing. And they're pointing that out. We know that feeling. I was reflecting this week uh, on... Uh, the book and the movie Just Mercy, right? We experience the, the wicked or the unjust getting ahead, whether it be uh, in racial injustice or whether it be uh, financially or all kinds of different ways. And I was thinking about Just Mercy. I've, I've just seen the movie. I'll confess I haven't read the book. But if you look at that, most of the injustice actually isn't a legal injustice in that even though the law is used, you could change a couple laws and maybe make a different outcome, but not really. It's the heart of those who utilize the law inappropriately to incarcerate someone who is innocent. Their hearts were corrupted. That's an injustice. That's a wrong. And we experience that, and they seem like they get away with it for a very long time. We experience that in life. The wicked spring up like grass, and evildoers flourish. So we can understand the concerns that are going on here when they say it seems like those who are wicked get ahead. Now, I'll give you a verse that's a good prayer for those times when we feel like that's the way the world works. Psalm 94, 16 is a good prayer for us to take before the Lord. It reads, Who will rise up for me against the wicked and who will take a stand for me against evildoers? That that way we can go to God and say, It doesn't feel right. That's okay. They're not doing that. They're they're just kind of giving up. We can go before the Lord. And then I'll give you a little wisdom on, on the reality and the truth of this. If you read the book of Job, Uh, You've got sort of three wise uh, men, supposedly, who help Job along and sometimes have good advice and sometimes really don't. And then the young guy, Elihu, speaks up at the end in Job 34, and he says this, there's no deep shadow, no utter darkness where evildoers can hide. God will have the final word. But we can understand their concern. Seems like evildoers get ahead which feeds into their second concern, which really seems to me to be God's just looking for us to fail anyway. Concern one kind of leads to concern two. So they they say, we're going around mourning, doing your will, and doing the stuff we're supposed to do, and the unjust are prospering, and we're not prospering. So what are we doing this for? It really kind of becomes a, a... sort of a Looney Tunes moment, you know, the classic, if you can't beat them, join them, is one of the lines from that. Everybody's doing this bad stuff anyways, we might as well just join in. They're prospering, and we're going around mourning before you, God, and not getting anywhere. There's a resignation that comes in the face of that. Years ago, when I was in college uh, in Chicago, I... uh, worked for a catering company. We, um, 
we, were, we did a lot of places down along the lakefront there, the big museums and that kind of thing. I remember doing an event at the Field Museum. Always loved doing them there. You got a, it's a rich gala of you know, people who have an awful lot of money giving it to a charity. Don't remember what the charity was in this case, but I do remember the cake that they had. They had a massive about five by four base cake, multi-tiered cake that was out as a display cake. But when we went to serve to the dessert, you know, this place is full. This is hundreds of people in this place. They didn't use that cake. They used another cake. The display cake, which was a real cake, was just going to be thrown away in the end, which kind of seemed wasteful for a charity event, but whatever. So um, what's interesting is that I watched as a lot of uh, my fellow caterers walked by as the event was coming to its close, dessert had been served, and they realized the cake wasn't going to be served, and they started just sticking a finger in there on one side and just taking pieces of the cake. And you can see that this thing just disappears slowly as they're bringing their dirty plates back and taking a thing of cake and taking another thing. And, and there was a sense in which, I never took any, by the way, but there's a sense in which they resigned to the lowest common denominator. It's just going to get wasted anyways. Even though it's not ours, we're, we're going to enjoy it. That's what you have here. Why bother doing good when it doesn't bring prosperity? And I would suggest what they have is an insufficient view of God. We've seen it through the whole book, and we ought to round it out here. They have an insufficient view of God, and I'm going to give two insufficient views that they have and that we may very well have as well that we need to analyze in our own lives. Um, the first is, related to the video, God as a vending machine. You could put this as a, a number of different ways of seeing God, but I think they clearly see that. We're mourning, we're walking around doing your stuff, and we're not getting the things that we want. God, if we just put in the coin and punch the buttons the right way, we would get the things we want. God is a vending machine. You could also call it a karma view of God. That is, if I do good, good's going to come. If I do bad, bad's going to happen, right? Which is not a Christian view at all, but sometimes we operate that way without realizing it when it comes to God and when it comes to how we pray. You could also, the vending machine view of God, maybe closer to home for many of us, what we encounter is more of a the moralistic therapeutic deism, that fancy term that we throw around sometimes, uh, idea that people have. That is, God is love. We run into this. He loves me, and all should go well. If God is love, God loves me, all should go well in life. And if things don't go well, that's on God, not on me. Obviously, something's insufficient with who God is. That's how we encounter that insufficient view of God in the world. If I pray, it should pay, is sometimes what we actually go with in our attitude. If I didn't get what I want in the time that I want it, then what good is God to me? That's God as a vending machine. And sometimes we can have that attitude, whether we realize it or not, in, in bigger or smaller ways. You can see that at play in Malachi. If I don't get good things, well, at least God shouldn't judge me, right? I'm trying. I'm trying to be good. But that's an insufficient view of God. That's not the God we're presented with in Scripture. The other insufficient view of God that I suggest that's here, and I'm going to use uh, the work of J.B. Phillips, who wrote Your God is Too Small back in the 50s. Brilliant book. Read it. Very short. It'll take you way longer than you think to get through it, though, because he's very dense in his writing. It's very thick. Um, he has a bunch of insufficient views of God. One of them that I think relates to this is God is the resident policeman. Uh, we could put it in a couple different ways too. You could also say maybe God, the killjoy God. That is, somebody might be having fun somewhere, so I'm going to stop it. 
I'm going to make sure that you're, you're always having somebody look over your shoulder and every little infraction I'm going to come after you on. So there's no joy in life at all. You're always going to feel like you're in the wrong with me. Maybe a way to put this uh, in lighter terms is we have a cat that's almost two years old. She's very kittenish still. Scratching post, couch. We have the scratching post next to the couch so she won't scratch the couch. When she scratches the post, gets a treat. When she scratches the couch, gets a spray from the water bottle. She'll come, scratch the post, get a treat. The dog comes too to get a treat because she thinks she should too. So there's two treats now. Then immediately we'll go to the couch, scratch that and get sprayed and get sprayed and act like it's a new concept every time. Why would you do that? God is a resident policeman. Kill joy, God. Maybe God is the God with the spray bottle. He's always there trying to stop us from doing the things we want to enjoy. They go mourning before God here in Malachi as if it's a burden to experience God-given freedom. As if it's some kind of a burden to live in the God-provided land. As if it's a burden on them to live with God-provided provision for life. As if it's a burden to have God give them a method by which they could be made right with Him. That's their response to God. You're just out for our worst, not our best, in the midst of all God's blessings to them. I want to quote J.B. Phillips because it rounds out both of these. It's a long quote, and I shortened it even, but it's, it's good. It's a good quote. He, he says, To many people, conscience is almost all they have by way of knowledge of God. This still small voice which makes them feel guilty or unhappy before, during, or after wrongdoing is God speaking to them. Now, no serious advocate of a real adult religion would deny the function of conscience or deny that its voice may at least give some inkling of the moral order. Yet to make conscience into God is a highly dangerous thing to do. Conscience is by no means an infallible guide, and it is unlikely that we shall ever be moved to worship, love, and serve a nagging inner voice that at worst spoils our pleasure and at best keeps us rather negatively on the path of virtue. That's the view of God they appear to have. It's interesting then that the one time we get a glimpse into the faithful remnant, the people who are faithful through all of this, who stuck with God and the covenant, small as they might be, is just at the very end here before we read about judgment coming. You know, verse 16 talked about the, those who feared the Lord, the faithful. They talked amongst themselves. And then we go to verse 17 and 18, and God speaks again. He says, on the, on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father, as, as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Judgment is coming, we're told. And it's gonna, it, the question is, is it going to be good or bad? And it very much depends on your perspective. We recognize that the faithful remnant here are still waiting for the final messenger that we read about in earlier in chapter 3, Jesus. And it's Jesus. He's the one who allows us 
to get to the judgment day and be exonerated, not live in fear. It's Jesus who takes away the sin that would put us under God's judgment because the wrath of God is aimed at sin. And if that's on the sinner, then we have a problem. But if Jesus has removed it, that's going to be a glorious day of exoneration. We can get a, a, a very similar glimpse of this in the New Testament, John 3, 16. And we're going to go through verse 18, because we often stop at 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But it gets better. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's the very judgment that's talked about here at the end of Malachi. In verse 18, if you look at that, and this is an overused concept right now, but it works like a Rorschach test in a sense, based on our view of God and what God's going to do. So that's those ink blots, right, that the psychiatrist holds up. What do you see in this picture, right? And it's supposed to tell you what's actually going on in your mind, that kind of thing. But verse 18 works like that. If we know Jesus Christ and that sin has been taken off of us and washed away, then we look at verse 18 and we say, whoever believes is not condemned, yes, we celebrate. But if that's not our reality, this seems very condemnatory, doesn't it? It's judgy. And it is on purpose. If we believe that God is an insufficient view of God and we believe that God is the defeater of joy in our life and the robber of a good time, this verse stinks. This verse is terrible. If, however, you believe that the world was made by God and we were intended to live in right relationship with God, if you believe that our sin has been broken or has broken that relationship and that Jesus restores that relationship, then this is supremely good news. In fact, the best news possible. And it does come down in the end to what do you believe about God? And his character and what he's doing in this world. Is God a God of restoration or a God that's just killing the joy? The truth is that being made new in Jesus is the response of the faithful remnant. That should be our response. That in Jesus Christ we're made new so that this becomes good news, in fact. In Jesus Christ, if you follow him, in Jesus Christ, you are God's treasured possession. In Jesus Christ, your sin is judged, but you are exonerated and free. In Jesus Christ, you are free to live in God's will, which is the best way and the only way to experience being God's treasured possession beginning now through eternity. And I love the image that Malachi gives of living in that freedom, being exonerated at judgment. In Malachi 4.2, I wanted this to be the sermon title. It says that you will frolic like well-fed calves. Wouldn't that be a great sermon title? Well-fed calves. What's he going to say today, you wonder? Well, like you can imagine, you know, when a baby animal, a small animal is fed, what do they do? They're going all over the place running. You're going to have that kind of joy within you. And that is what Jesus Christ should do within us because we're free. You'll never do God's will if your will takes 
priority. That's what we said at the beginning. And when God's will takes priority, you can endure anything that the world throws at you. Because there are going to be tough days. The faithful remnant had to endure a lot. Jesus says we'll have to endure a lot if we follow him. When God's will is our will, we may despair when evil and injustice seem to have the upper hand and appear to be winning, but we know they're not. God's power is greater than the pain of this world. This morning, I think one of the appropriate responses, we're going to take time at the end of this, is to confess. We try and do this with regularity as a, as a body of believers and in different ways. The appropriate thing is to confess, to make sure that we indeed are living under a right view of God, a God of restoration, who wants us back in communion with him. And so I'm going to invite the band forward, and then I'm going to give you some instructions on how we're going to do this. What we're going to do is I'm giving you some instructions. Then I'm going to give you the benediction, the blessing. And then we're going to play the final song, which seems out of order. But as they play the song, right on there, what you need to confess, insufficient view of God's, insufficient view of God, what areas where you need to actually heal with somebody else and confess your wrongdoing where you feel a longing from God and need to be made right because of sin or neglect of that relationship, confess that as a prayer on there. Fold it in half, walk it up to the front, put it in the basket, and then you can either continue to sing or leave and go enjoy snacks. That is, you're, you're dismissed once I say the benediction to do that. Nobody's going to see these. I'm not going to look at them. You're the only one who sees them. Once the last song is done, I'm going to come up here and trash them. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That's the promise of God. When we confess and he forgives, we will do the same as much as we can. So take time to write on there. Let me give you the benediction. Write on there and then come forward and drop it in the basket. If you need someone to bring it up for you, just hand it off to someone. Here's word from Psalm 92 as our blessing. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name. O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, for you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. Let's confess so that we can live in the freedom of that God right now.